Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 89. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Ali Sayed Ahmad. Ali is a biology teacher at Niles West High School in Skokie, Illinois. Ali began working at Niles West in the fall of 2017 as a substitute and then was hired as a science paraprofessional at the school, followed by being hired as a full teacher in the fall of 2019. So this year, he is teaching both biology and honors biology. And Ali is also one of the 2019 Knowles Teaching Fellows. You can follow Ali on Instagram at Sayed Science and on Twitter at Ali Sayed Science as well. I'm getting used to these Instagrams. Welcome, Ali. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, we got to meet face to face out in Chicago uh, at NABT. I think we had uh, at least one meal together. I don't know. I feel like I was sitting around a table with uh, biology teachers uh, from Chicago every time I, I sat down for a meal. So uh, we had at least one meal together. I remember yeah. that, that, that second day. Um, and I saw you at a few other times hanging out with people. So um, how have you been since uh, Chicago? Um, been doing well. Uh, I, I learned lots of great things uh, at NABT and I'm like kind of excited to try some things out this year with the with the workshops I went to. Yeah, so you're you're now where you know you're now an old grizzly vet having what four months in um, <laughs> of, right. of teaching. So yeah, we'll get into how how year one's going, but um, I am always curious to hear like young teachers' reactions to NABT. What what was it like to go to NABT? Was it was it overwhelming? Was it inspiring? Was it like all of the above? Um, all of the above, I would just say like, uh, it's, it's just inspiring to see lots of like dedicated educators from all over the country, just, you know, just going to this conference to like improve their profession and just learn new things from the, the workshops that they attend. And it is a little overwhelming just because there's so much to do. But it was it was like a good overwhelming. It wasn't like, you know, too too crazy. We have any NSTA coming up in Boston in just a, a little bit. And that one to me feels overwhelming. It's like now twenty times bigger than wow. NABT. <laughs> um and it's all sciences. So you've got everything from from K through college, you know, like uh, so it, it's in all of the yeah. sciences, not just biology. So it's it's a little overwhelming. Yeah. But my district was talking about like having people go for a day and you like open up the catalog and they're like, well, what day do you want to go? And you open up yeah. the catalog and it's like there's like 40 things happening at 8 a.m. Like, <laughs> like, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. So um yeah, fortunately, I've been to a handful of, of national conferences, both NABT and NSTA. And I, I do think you... Like the first one I remember going to, the first NSTA I went to uh, was back in 1999. Um, and I remember I had went in with like some very specific goals, um, just yeah. happened to have a couple of things that I was supposed to be working on for my curriculum for the next year. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go to this thing and I'm going to learn about this, this and this. So I like literally just went through the catalog looking for just those things. And even though it was like overwhelming with all the people, because I had such a focused mission 
of just like two curriculum things. Like everything I went to fit into like one of two curriculum buckets that I had been working on. Uh, it actually made it really manageable. Hmm. Um, and so like now whenever I go to a conference, that's what I do. Like, so, um, I, I don't try to do everything. I pick like one of my curriculum goals and I go, well, like if I go to this thing and I want to focus on say data science, like what's there from data science. And then I just literally search the catalog looking all about like how people are manipulating data science for NSTA. And it gave me like a picture of what was a manageable thing to approach if I just want to try to get that out of there. But you're right. If you're just looking at, whoa, all of these different things, especially when you're new in your career, there's so many areas where you, I'm sure you want to improve and learn and, and that sort of stuff, but it can be very overwhelming. For sure. And it's, that's, that's the thing you have to have a strategy going into these conferences. If you don't have an idea of like what you want to do, then it's just going to be a really overwhelming experience. Just trying to pick and choose like, you know, the sessions you want to go to. Yeah. The other thing that can, that can help. And I know I've served this role for people before is if you have somebody who's like, just come with me to all of these sessions. Um, (laughs) And I, I certainly do. I usually go in with a plan and then unfortunately I get like hijacked by friends. Um, (laughs) Oh, I'm going to this session. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to this session. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That happened. That happened a couple of times. No, Britt didn't drag you to a couple of conferences, did she? Um. (laughs) Uh, Just like, just one, just one. Yeah. I think Britt and I like went to a conference and then we're like misbehaving in the back of the room, like as old friends do. And we're like, oh, well, this is how I would do this with the curriculum. And I think I have all these notes on like a scrap piece of paper of like a whole curriculum flow that we wrote out uh, <laughs> based on nice. the workshop we were in. We were totally ignoring the facilitators at the conference, but we developed <laughs> some good stuff. So, all right. Well, I could reminisce about Chicago for for a long, long time, but I do want to get into the questions I like to ask everybody. So let's start off with the first question I always like to ask everyone. And for you, this is not ancient history. This is like (laughs) the last couple of years, but uh, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? So um, it's actually like, I I kind of took a non-traditional route. So um, in 2012, one of my college professors asked me to be a TA for Um, an intro bio class at the university. And I said yes. And I really enjoyed that experience. And I just, I don't know, I just felt like motivated and excited to do it. Um, But then I I went to medical school for um, two and a half years after college. Like when I got to the clinical portion of medical school, I kind of realized that, you know, I I don't have the... um, just like the the emotional capacity to handle like all of this, you know, sad stuff that I was seeing. And Mm -hmm. even though I enjoyed what I learned in medical school, it was just, it was just a really tough experience. So when I was kind of thinking of switching careers, I, my partner, who's, who's also a teacher, he was like, you know, why don't you go on leave from medical school for a little bit, try subbing in my district for a little while. And then from there, I, I realized like, whoa, I, I really should be in teaching. And that's when I decided to like leave medical school and then start a teacher prep program. And then the, my, the department chair heard I was a good substitute. So she was like, you know, why don't you try going into the science paraprofessional position. Um, So I did that and it was such a great experience just like working with kids and 
you know, working with students who are struggling in science or like not as motivated. And from there, I just became a biology teacher. So it was a really uh, interesting route that I took to education, but I'm here now and, and it's and it's going really well so far. Uh, well, I feel like there's so much to unpack from your story. Uh, like yeah. the, the first thing is like, I, I it is not uncommon for me to talk to people and say, how'd you become a teacher? And they're like, I went to college and I wanted to be a doctor. Um, in fact, yeah. I, like the my the episode right before this one, the person got into veterinary school, which is so hard to get into. Um, yeah. But then before starting veterinary school, like, you know, said, I don't want to do this and then made a shift in, in career. So the number of people I know who have been accepted into a medical program and then told their parents that, like, I am not going to pursue medical school in there. But to go two and a half years in, um, I just want to start with that. Like, first, uh, what was was it OK from a family perspective to make that shift? Was that a hard conversation? Yeah, so my parents were the ones that kind of encouraged me to go um, into medicine. And, you know, and especially in my culture, it's just like being a physician is such a, you know, like a high status position to have. And um, they encouraged me to do that. I wasn't like 100% sure about it. But then I was like, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I and I think I like it. So why not go into it? Um, and, you know, having to tell my parents that I'm, I'm quitting med school, that was, that was actually pretty rough. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's about like, if you, if you're happy or not yeah. um, doing what you're doing. So I feel pretty good about it right now. Um, my parents, you know, there's, you know, they're not always happy that I made that decision, but um, it's okay. I'm, I'm pretty happy where I'm at. Uh, I think that's one of the things that gets like reflected back as part of that decision. And you were describing sort of the, like the emotional challenge of being a physician. And I, I can think of the, the teaching in times, I mean, teaching is, is a lot of times very like joyful and wonderful, but there are like hard emotional pieces, uh, especially when you work with students who are sort of in at-risk populations or ones who are, you know, yeah. students who traditionally struggle. And I, I've for many, many years worked in an alternative program with kids who really just struggled through the school day and, and basically bottomed out of sort of traditional school. And that's how they got into the alternative program. And we would have these meetings that would be so emotionally heavy. Like I can yeah. remember several of them where like just the lives of these kids are so rough and so unfair that like these kids are dealing with this emotional baggage. But at the same time, I, I can envision how that's, you know, there's a, there's a note of promise when dealing with those students as opposed to potentially some medical issues that, that could also be, you know, equally medically or emotionally challenging, but, but maybe harder because the people are in a different part of their life. They've got different demands on them and there also may not be the same kind of prognosis. Yeah, for sure. And when you're dealing with, you know, stuff that's life and death, it's just, it's so hard. You have to have like a lot of empathy and you have to be good at comforting people. And yeah, there's parallels between teaching and medicine, but I just remember like a moment when I was shadowing in the ICU and, you know, I was around these patients uh, and their and their families were around them. And I could see like 
a person like slowly, you know, dying. And it was just, it was just really, that was something hard. It was just really hard to see, you know? So yeah, there's definitely some parallels there with teaching and, and, and health, but I guess, I guess with teaching, like I, I, yeah, there's always that promise. There's always like, I, I just feel like when you're dealing with young people, there's a lot of hope involved. And I think that's like really the, the, the big appealing thing about being an educator. Yeah. I, I can imagine that the, there are probably, as you said, parallels and hopeful moments in both. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you were to sort of balance the scales, teaching probably has more hope than tragedy and, and medicine, especially in certain fields of medicine, there's probably feels like more tragedy than hope. Um, and that's a, yeah. I can, I can see that. And it's also, you know, as hard as I always say teaching is uh, medical school, the first two and a half years of medical school is, is grueling. So oh, yeah. I, I can imagine there might've also been a little bit of a, a burnout component to just the, the grind of that, that, of that academic uh, load that you were under. For sure. Um, so I, I took all of the basic uh, medical science classes and it's just an overwhelming amount of information that you have to know especially the uh, the pressure of the USMLE, which is the board exam that, that you have to take. It's an eight-hour exam and kind of covers everything you learned in the first two years. And um, it, was, it was pretty tough to uh, take that test. And it was probably the hardest test I ever took. So yeah, it was a real hard grind, like in terms of studying and the information that you have to know and apply. Yeah. And a fun, and a fundamentally your passion starts to wane in that. I, I can understand it. Like that makes, makes logical sense that you would try something out and then to try something else and to have it be it, you know, as you said, like something that you were both feeling like you were making a difference and were getting positive feedback on. Um, I, I can, I can see the, the how, how in your life with yeah. your family, it was challenging, but also it could be, you know, promoted by the emotional uh, lift of taking that switch. For sure. For sure. Okay. So, so now you're, you're in year one, sort of official year one. Um, and I do think you have a unique experience having been in that building for a few years before becoming, you know, like a year one teacher there, but, but how has year one been um, to get your own class and sort of to be in charge of your own curriculum? Um, have there been any surprises or, 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 things that you didn't anticipate um, or just how was this year going? Uh, so I feel pretty good about year one. Uh, th the biggest reason why is because I have so much support from my colleagues. Um, I'm lucky to work in a really great school, um, great department. And, you know, anytime I need help, people are, you know, willing to help me. And it's, it's just a great kind of collaborative environment that we have. Though it's it was different from it's much different from being a paraprofessional because as a uh, a para you're not making like the big decisions um, you're just there you're more there in like a supportive capacity and you're just supporting the students but as a teacher uh, you're making the big decisions and you are um, kind of exercising your creative freedom in the classroom and seeing. Um, how you can manipulate your curriculum to like 
help your students understand things better. And uh, I think I think the biggest surprise for me would be just the just the amount of decision making that you have to make on a daily basis. It's just really tough sometimes, but it's it's really it's just a really exciting profession because I like during this past year, I could like kind of see myself grow as an educator. Like when I look, you know, a few months back at what I was doing, I I think to myself like, oh, shoot, I was doing that. Like I need to change that, change that for next year. So uh, it's, it's been a really, it's been a really good learning experience and just really exciting. Yeah. I, I, I think it's amazing that you're able to see growth within that year. I, cause I think, uh, you know, I make the analogy all the time of, of drinking from the fire hose. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. sort of how I, I, I remember the first like couple of years, in fact, uh, being, um, I wonder how much of that is also, you know, having established relationships with colleagues because you worked in that building that you were starting out from a collegial, uh, relationship point, not yeah. on as, not as a new person, but as somebody who already had established relationships with with your colleagues, um, and so you didn't have to kind of go through that trust building arc necessarily um, with some of the colleagues in your building. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it it definitely helped that like I knew like who people were, and um, I also was able to observe different teachers as a paraprofessional. So I got to see like, oh, these teachers are doing some cool things in their classrooms. So like, why don't I take that idea and use that in my teaching? And it's, it's um, I guess I had a really unique experience in that I was able to observe so many different teaching styles and kind of pick and choose what I liked from that, from 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 different teachers. And kind of try to apply that to my classroom. And um, yeah, it's been such a great uh, experience and enjoy trying to kind of have my own style and um, apply the things that I learned from other teachers in the past. So it's interesting that you talk about the idea of observations of other teachers because it actually mirrors something that um, uh, Katie Ryan, who I talked to back in December, and she's actually was wrapping up her student teaching um, at the time. And she talked about how her Mm -hmm. program had her in all of these different classrooms, both observing and then working with people at different levels. And there's definitely something to like having a a lot of experience where you're watching other teachers, uh, particularly if you have the mindset of this may be something that I'm going to take on down the road. So that's sort of an interesting, an interesting thing that I don't know that I appreciated as much um, until sort of recent conversations with people who who both went back to that as a helpful experience. Um, I always wonder how much helpful it, it, how helpful it is to watch another teacher teach, uh, yeah, when you're not a teacher yourself. I would say it's really helpful. Um, I just, you know, it's important to take notes. And and I got to observe teachers for like uh, two years as a paraprofessional. So I, I got a lot of exposure to different teaching styles. The other thing is as a substitute, uh, I learned more of the classroom management type of stuff. So, you know, as a para, you're kind of just working alongside a teacher, but as a substitute, you're kind of in charge of the class. And the kids don't know you and uh, it can be a little stressful because you don't know the kids names. So uh, it might might be hard to control a classroom. So like I kind of learned some of the classroom management tricks from my (laughs) subbing experience. 
and I learned some of the teaching strategies from my para experience. So I got a good mix of experience there. I think of um, being a substitute as somebody who has to sort of project a uh, like almost as to like project a persona, like it's as much a like projection that you're in control, uh, <laughs> as it is totally. having those strategies that sort of follow up as well. So, so the other thing that kind of strikes me about, uh, you coming into running your own classroom right now, um, is when I think of Illinois, um, and I think of teachers, I think of, uh, people like our, our common friend, uh, Rich Perna and also people like Jason Crean, um, and mm -hmm. the whole NGSS storyline and curriculum. Um, and that was actually one of my, my initial questions was I was wondering how, how much of this, or if you'd played around with it. And then I went on some of your social media and I saw the elephant dung, uh, lab yeah. uh, with seeds in there. And I think if somebody knows the curriculum, they know that's a part of the Africa storyline. And if they don't, they have no idea why I just mentioned elephant dung and seeds. But um, I'm curious, uh, you know, uh, what you've tried as part of the NGSS storyline curriculum and sort of how have your, what have your students' reactions been to to trying out that the storylining approach to teaching? Sure. So um, I did uh, two units of storylining when I was uh, student teaching. So I tried the Africa unit and I tried the homeostasis unit. And it was such a unique experience and such a different way of teaching. It was a little bit hard for me at first because as, as a person who loves biology and their content, you have to like think, think about how to teach in a different way. So um, you have to see it as we're helping the students develop their skills versus teaching them a bunch of facts about biology. And, and you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of hard for somebody who really likes their content because you kind of want to delve deeply into the content, but then there's also this piece where you have to focus on students like scientific reasoning skills and their argumentation skills and data collection skills. So uh, it's been a really interesting experience. And um, I, th I think the students do like it just because it's related to real world phenomena. But yeah, I do miss the aspect of, you know, delving into the content, but that's okay. Uh, it's just, it's just an, it's, just a new and different way of teaching. Hmm. So I'm I'm curious. Have you tried it on, at, with different levels? As I know, you teach both biology and an honors biology. Uh, do you guys use storylining at at every level, or is it something that you've tried at one level versus the other? Or what have your experiences been? So with honors biology, we have a different curriculum that is right now a little bit more content based. So um, I'm, I'm slowly moving towards storylining and honors bio, kind of incorporating a real world phenomena with the curriculum. But we're kind of in the process right now of changing the honors bio curriculum so um, that it's maybe a little more compatible with storylining. But in my regular bio classes uh, this semester, I'm, I'm going like, you know, into storylining doing the melt, starting off with the melanin unit. And um, it's, it's been a great unit so far. I think it's my favorite unit just because the students are so engaged and so interested in it. And it really teaches genetics in a new way that I hadn't thought of before. 
Uh, I played around with the storylining when I worked with an alternative program, and I found it just like, as you were sort of mentioning, it's really engaging. And I've been kicking myself a little bit this year because we did a massive overhaul of our biology curriculum, and we actually aligned sort of all of our, our sort of regular levels of biology from our honors down to our CP level so that they were all similar in scope and sequence. I think we chunk them up yeah. a little bit differently. So I think, you know, in the honors where we're doing, like, I think we've chunked it into like eight chunks. Some of those got subdivided and um, at the other levels, they've added some some break points in the middle of units. So they broke up some of our longer units into smaller ones. So they're more like 10, but the scope and sequence is basically the same. Um, but I, I wished I, the way I described it is I wish I had pushed the concept of storylining a little harder about three months before we got into the discussion of doing the curriculum like revamping. I didn't realize we yeah. were going to, I thought we were further away time-wise from revamping our curriculum. Like I thought we were going to make a little switch this year as part of like a longer term thing. And this year we actually made a pretty wholesale change. And now knowing that we made that wholesale change, I kind of wish I'd like really pumped the storylining a little bit more because I think yeah. it, it's something that we, I wouldn't be shocked if four or five years from now, we're in a much more storylining mode. I just think it's, I'm not sure how, how messy it's going to be to get there because I feel like we've changed things. We now need to do what we're doing, take some feedback, see how things are going to going. And I don't think anybody's going to want to like make the kind of wholesale change over to a storylining approach. Yeah. Seeing as we just spent like a year, like all this rewriting and realigning and <laughs> resource creation and, and all of that. Um, so yeah, I, I'm intrigued by it, but I, I hear what you're saying about like skill development versus telling slash teaching content. I, I personally am in a place where I am very constructivist in my background. So mm -hmm. presenting content to me is like very low in my, uh, very low in my priorities. I, as I think about how I, I balance the way I, I design my curriculum about presenting content, um, I used to be a very much, here are our PowerPoint slides, Here here's all the content to you, and then we would do activities afterwards. I am somebody who very much is, let's find some activities, let's find some, find some phenomena, all right, let's now generate questions and then unpack those questions and go that way. And so I am trying to infuse as much of my curriculum as that way. And I think if you adopt the storylining methodology, you're adopting sort of a constructivist view that it is not about the vocabulary, it is not about a predetermined set of content, but uh, developing phenomena that will students will naturally unpack the concepts that you want them to unpack. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's I, I feel like that's the most appealing thing about it is it just, you know, less of a focus on content and more on having students discover the science for themselves. And the funny thing that I'm seeing is like my uh, students who are traditionally really good at school and like good at science classes, um, the ones who are good at, you know, submitting assignments and learning the vocab and memorizing everything they're they're struggling a little bit with this storylining curriculum uh whereas some of the you know students who are you know not the most diligent students i feel like they're getting such a great understanding of the science because of this storylining curriculum and um it's it's really it's been a really interesting experience to see how different types of students react to it and I, I can definitely see myself using storylining in the future. 
feel I mean storylining isn't perfect, but I think it's a really great way to teach biology. Yeah, I mean the it, it, you, what you're saying about the students who are good at school um, find storylining tough. Uh, that is something that has very much been my experience um, that I've learned as I've been just doing more skill based instruction. So you know, going back over the last seven to 10 years, the amount of inquiry that we've layered into our curriculum has gone way, way up. It used to be that we'd run a lab and the lab had a predetermined sort of set of answers that we expected. Um, It wasn't good science. It was very much a lot of confirmatory, oh, here is an experiment. This experiment is going to show this trend in the data. Hey, look, see how the trend that I told you about is now shown in the data. It's sort of your classic cookbook kind of lab. Um, yeah. And I have been pushing for for years and years and years. And I would say, you know, probably starting 10 to 12 years ago, um, me and some of my colleagues were really pushing to the point where we were really working to start to dismantle that stuff. But um, over those first five or six years, as we got better at inquiry instruction, at not presenting cookbook labs, the students who struggled the most with it were our honors and AP students. They wanted to know the right answer. They wanted to be told what they were supposed to get. And the concept that they were supposed to generate questions or um, that they, they could run a lab that wouldn't work. And then they had to pull out of there what they learned from what they perceived as failure. Uh, it was a really fascinating uh, like feedback cycle that I learned that that they they don't view learning as the goal of school. They they very much are in that like accumulation of points um, yeah. <laughs> approach to school. And it's ironic sort of having that conversation with you because somebody who gets to medical school is usually somebody who's very good at accumulating points. Um, <laughs> so you probably were curious, but you were also very yeah. good. You had to, you had to be good at collecting points in order to get to that point. So I, I I'm sure you probably can relate to some of their, uh, the things they like and don't like about those the the curriculum that you're talking about that that may promote some other things. Yeah, so so with those students, I, it's definitely like uh, a tr- like a transition for them and trying to get them out of that mindset that oh, like you, this is about the accumulation of points, and it's more about like un- like understanding like your thinking and understanding just like how things are working versus like getting the right answer. Um, So that's been uh, an interesting challenge for sure. And I think, I think about biology in a different way now because of teaching in this way. So um, I'll give you an example. Like in in one of the storylines we do pedigrees before doing Punnett squares. And I had always thought that, you know, you can't really understand pedigrees without, you know, understanding alleles and Punnett squares and all that stuff. So it's, it's really interesting, just learning biology from a different perspective, um, from my end, and then teaching it to the students or having them discover it on their own. So um, that's been a really uh, good experience. I can see the the appeal to showing pedigrees before yeah. understanding the Punnett squares. Yeah, it's definitely, you're right. This the exact opposite way of what I do it, the way I do it, where I present them at the end, sort of the tail end. Um, it's sort of like a, an application at the end, but if you were to approach it from sort of that BSES I squared approach, 
of like, what do I see? What do I interpret of this image? Um, that idea where if students were to look mm-hmm. at, say, a, a sex-linked based pedigree before they saw it, they would hopefully ask questions about, well, why do only males have this? Or, yeah. you know, why do you, what, what is the pattern you see? Do you see any individuals who both parents have something, but neither, but a child doesn't have it? How could that happen? You can see the generation of questions that could come out uh, as a result of that process. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's been such a great experience just seeing how students deal with, you know, the unknown and what what they what the information that they can extract from the phenomena or things that I'm presenting to them. And I, I think they really enjoy it because it's getting them to think about science in a different way. And they're not memorizing facts as much. It's more about discovering and understanding the genetics. Mm. Mm-hmm. Let's transition to another sort of key aspect of your support system. And you actually mentioned your your colleagues and your school and how it's very much set up for you um, to, to feel supported. But you are also uh, a Knowles Teaching Fellow, which is uh, a very prestigious program. I, I've had many people involved with the Knowles program on um, over the last couple of years. But I'm curious for you, what's it like to be a Knowles Teaching Fellow and, and what has the professional development and support been like as you've been part of this program? So it's been such a fantastic experience being part of the the Knowles Fellowship. So it's a fellowship of math and science teachers um, from all over the country where we get a chance to discuss the big ideas in teaching science or math and really kind of taking apart those big ideas and then seeing how those uh, ideas can be applied to our classroom. And we do some inquiry with our cohort and kind of just explore what we're doing in the classroom with each other and then getting some constructive feedback about that from our colleagues. Uh, For example, one of our disciplinary practices that we're looking at is modeling. So the thing that we're doing right now is looking at how we're incorporating modeling in our classroom and then presenting that data to to our group and then analyzing that data together. So it's been a really enriching experience just hearing people's perspectives and ideas. And the Knowles Fellowship is just a great place to talk about new ideas and to feel safe doing it. And I think that the greatest appeal of it is that the the fellowship is driven by the fellows themselves and it's really just a great organization if you are, you know, a new teacher who's who's motivated about exploring what it means to be doing science and what it what it means to be a science teacher. Yeah. So while you work with the the cohort, you're also working with sort of veteran teachers that are yeah. helping you along the the line. So um, do you have? I'm not really sure how the relationship works. Um, what is the sort of professional development like? Do you go to a place and then spend time with like your cohort and experienced teachers and and work at a certain place and then go back to your place, or do you have a a continuing relationship? Uh, throughout the year, either with your colleagues at the same level or at, with veteran teachers. Uh, how do those relationships sort of uh, work th- as you work through the year? 
Sure. So um, it, it is continuous throughout the year. Um, but we do have like three major conferences uh, throughout the year. So we have a fall conference, a spring conference, and a summer one. And what we do at those conferences is, well, in, I, I'm only in year one right now. So what we're doing right now is looking at the scientific disciplinary practices uh, that we've been talking about. And we do get guidance from uh, the veteran teachers who work with us and um, we work with these uh, with TDs, which are uh, teacher developers, and they just kind of facilitate our conversations and they provide support for us and they help us with there, there's also like a grant writing aspect of, of the Knowles Fellowship and they help us with, you know, writing grants and uh, they just kind of facilitate these activities and kind of like doing science as as learners so practicing science as learners so we so we did a really cool activity with the fellowship where we were uh looking at how the the solar eclipse worked um the the most recent solar eclipse and just by like doing science as learners it the idea is that like it helps you become a better educator and i i really just enjoy the the collaborative aspect and the in the, the inquiry aspect of the of the fellowship um, and that inquiry happens throughout the year so you know uh, we have like a google group and uh, we do activities and uh, data analysis with, with people that we're working with in our cohort and um, it's just it's just a really nice way to keep in touch with other science teachers and it's you know refreshing to like get new ideas that you might not have heard of before. That's, that's very neat. Um, yeah. I, I, I like the sense of community also that, that seems to be part of it. It also sounds like, you know, this is a, a few years that you'll be part of this co cohort that you'll be with, but it, it seems like you probably have made connections that will be part of a community that will be throughout your career beyond this year. For sure. I've, I've made like so many friends through the fellowship and it's just, so um, every time I go to a conference, I feel so like refreshed and excited and, you know, ready to try new and exciting things in my classroom. You know, it's easy to like get discouraged throughout the year, like, you know, the day-to-day the -day grind in the classroom. Um, but when I talk to the Knowles Fellows and, and the veteran teachers who work with the fellowship, um, it just makes me feel like so refreshed and just excited to be a science teacher. And I think that's, that's also a huge aspect of it is just the like community and the support that you get through the fellowship. That's neat. Good perspective to get, uh, especially just in year one and, you know, a lot of promise to come up in the, the years to come, which I think is a natural transition to say this, you're, you're, you know, a, we got to be close to the halfway point at this year because you're in Ch Chicago area, which is similar school year to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> where where we start later than most people and we tend to run into June. Um, I'm sure you're similar to me where you're running a few weeks into June. So we're running around the halfway point of the year, but what are you looking forward to maybe uh, through the remainder of the year or really in the, the upcoming years as, as you start this teaching career? So uh, some of the big things are just like, for, for me, I'm 
the exciting thing for me is developing my content area knowledge too. So, you know, being in medical school, I, a lot of the focus was on the medical side of biology and I really want to get, uh, more knowledge, um, it, you know, from ecology and from evolution and, um, just areas of biology that, um, I haven't explored as much before. So, so definitely kind of looking at, you know, topics in biology that might be interesting to me or to my students that are that are found in the real world. And just, you know, trying new things that I, I've been seeing other teachers do. So like, whether it's, uh, you know, new inquiry activities, or, you know, just new teaching techniques, um, I'm really just excited to just try out the new things that I've been I've been hearing about. And I imagine almost everything is new. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, yeah. All right. Well, so uh, when you're not teaching, and I know that particularly as life of it is a, a early career teacher, there's not a lot of spare time. But when you're not teaching, uh, what do you like to do? Um, so, I, you know, I live in a big city. And the best thing about it is there's so many cultural institutions to kind of explore so I just um, I like exploring, uh, you know, different museums in the city, seeing like, you know, plays at, at theaters and something my partner and I like to do is go to the opera a couple times a year and just just, you know, explore what what the city has to offer. I also like, uh, you know, just, you know, working out, biking around the city and, you know, just in, you know, when I'm not, when I'm not super busy, just like having the time to just relax and, and kind of walk around and, and see what's going on in, in my Chicago neighborhood. Being, uh, being in the downtown area, I definitely enjoyed the, uh, the bike path along the water in Chicago. Um, <laughs> I don't know if yeah, that's through everybody's, I don't know if that's through everybody's neighborhoods around Chicago, but, um, I know that have, I've been on uh, on Lake Michigan now twice. I was in uh, Milwaukee uh, a couple summers ago um, and then in Chicago just this past November. And uh, uh, I, I just love the I love the pads that are in and around the water. They're not necessarily even the ones that are just a little bit into the city. Uh, it was a pretty uh, running friendly city and seems like a pretty biking friendly city uh, for a big city. Oh yeah, it's great. Um, it's it can it, the path can actually get really busy in the summer, but it's it's such a cool. Uh, the thing I love about Chicago is that we have the you know the a, a huge freshwater lake right, like right on the city's edge, and it's it's just really neat to to have that there. It's a pretty unique resource. Yeah, I, I will tell you in uh, 7 a.m. Um, in November, it was not crowded um, on the bike, bike paths. Uh, <laughs> so when yeah. I went, I went running before the conference mo uh, every day. Um, and oh, it was, nice. It, it, was, yeah. it was it was not busy. It was freezing, but uh, it, was not, yeah. it was not crowded. Actually, it wasn't that that cold uh, for you know, hardy Northeast folks uh, like myself. Uh, but it was, yeah, I, I can imagine it gets busy when I was at... Um, when I was in Milwaukee, it was like right uh, before Summerfest. Um, and even that first thing in the morning, if I would go out early in the runs, the the, the paths were absolutely packed um, yeah. with bikers and runners and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. All right. Before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? 
Sure. So um, what are some pieces of advice that you wish you got when you first started teaching? All right. So um, I, I feel like I, I get slammed by this question every time I talk to a new teacher and I'm always <laughs> like, I shouldn't be, I should have a pat answer. Um, I guess my, my, um, my biggest piece of advice would be to uh, know that you cannot fix everything in your curriculum um, at once that, uh, that change, if you want it to be sort of like within mission and you want it to be really of good quality, um, you'll have your down curriculum. Um, there will be parts of it that you will like more than others. Um, but try not to tr change m too many things year to year. Um, because if the more you change the, the more uncertainty you have and also the less feedback you get on the impacts of the changes that you made. So just like mm -hmm. science, you can't change five variables. Um, but if you want to approach something, um, really think very mindfully and not try not to tackle too many things in a given year and really make that just sort of your focus. So, um, I know a few years ago, like I did a mm -hmm. deep dive on how we were approaching homework. Um, and within there, there were lots of things to unpack with both like, you know, how much was it weighted? How long was it taking? How tied to the learning objectives they were? What, would, what types of things were we asking? Were we front loading it before content or was it things that were coming in after the content? Um, like just tackling one aspect provided me a lot of avenues to think about it. And it informed a lot of parts of my curriculum, but really I only had sort of one focus that year. And it made things manageable. Now I knew that there were many other things in my curriculum that probably could get better too, but I really focused in on the one thing and I felt mm -hmm. like I was able to make really good quality change throughout that year by really only having that one main focus. And so I think my first five years, I probably tried to tackle too many different things. And then I didn't know if the reason that something was being successful or not was because I was changing that thing or because I had like gotten rid of some other component of the curriculum that I, and I didn't understand how the things went together. So um, be a little patient with yourself when it comes to uh, trying new things and don't don't bite off too much because <laughs> you can you can go down the rabbit hole of too many yeah. too many changes at once, uh, which makes your life hard and it also makes it hard to know how meaningful the changes you're making are. For sure, yeah. Uh, this, that's good advice. I, I you know it's it's um it, it's a good thing to keep in mind because I, there's so many ideas that I get from so many different people. And I, it's hard to like see, um, you know, which ones do I want to incorporate this year? And um, I guess I do have to think about, you know, doing that at a at a more like deliberate pace for sure. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you. I'm particularly good at it. Um, <laughs> I I'd probably take on too many things any given year to do. Um, but I will say that one thing I have found is that I, I have found a point where I get to a breaking point for myself, where I literally have to say, nope, I cannot fit this yeah. in. Um, and I like literally I just we just had that conversation. I had it with my colleague. We we've been uh, doing some substantial changes to our AP curriculum. Um, and there were a couple of things that like I literally had to say to him on Friday. I was like, you know, I, I would love to make this change. I agree with you. This is something that I wish we did a little bit better. And I said, we cannot do this right now. Like I, I don't we just do not have the bandwidth 
to mm-hmm. add this extra thing onto our curriculum because what it would mean is that we if we make this change, we are committing ourselves to a certain amount of hours worth of work between now and the AP exam in May. And I was like, I just don't see how we're going to do this. And there have been a couple of things that came up where I was like, no, we're kind of saturated with change right now. I don't want to add anything else because I don't know. I barely feel like I can do all of the changes I've sort of self-committed to between now and the end of the year. Like, Let's just get through the year and know how this went and know that these two things are sort of on our docket for things that we're going to put into place for maybe next year when we we start doing our planning. So, um, yeah, it's it's hard to be disciplined because it's as you were, you said earlier, like you get excited about things. Um, I think that you have to um, you have to meet that excitement with like the realities and pragmatic nature that you are a human being and you only have so many hours in a day and you're supposed to sleep, too. Um, yeah. Kind of thing. So. Yeah. Totally agree. And then you have another I have question? One, I have one more question. So yeah. um, maybe what's what's a new and exciting thing that you're trying out in your classroom this year? Uh, well, I'm trying like nine or ten new <laughs> things this year yeah. uh, in, in face of the advice I just said. But um, it's sort of in the Im- immediacy of uh, what we've been talking about and uh, hopefully not stealing thunder too much from uh, picks to come up. Uh, but one of the things that I'm really looking at um, is uh, taking a little bit more of a constructivist lens to uh, aspects of my teaching. And and we talked about storylining, and I used that word before. But um, I come in, you know, as a, somebody who's been teaching for 24 years, when I, when I started teaching, like you've got a textbook, you presented the material that was in the textbook, uh, really sort of your evaluation of your teaching was at how effectively you translated the stuff into the textbook into a presentation to your students and then Mm -hmm. how well you assessed them on that and or new scenarios that they would apply from that. But you didn't really have them practice applications very much. And what you really did was present the history of science. You didn't really have them engage in science. And there was zero student voice in the topic that you went in. Like, you really like you might do a survey and ask kids like, oh, do you know about this or do you know about that? But the students did not have any voice and did not help inform the nature of your instruction in any way when I started teaching. Um, now, maybe they would fail something like you'd give a quiz and they'd bomb and you'd be like, oh, they bombed this quiz. I need to reteach this thing. But it was really just representing the material, maybe in a new way, but likely in a very similar way to the way you started. So um, yeah. as I move into genetics, um, and I've been having some conversations with uh, with Paul Strode, who's out in Colorado, about the idea of having students like unpack their ideas about heredity and genetics before we start to... Uh, before we start teaching material, um, and uh, particularly as it comes to uh, their ideas about how much do they think that genes contribute to phenotype. Um, and there's a lot of interesting research that has come out that we overteach genetic determinism um, in the way we present heredity and Mendel's laws and that sort of thing. And as a result, we reinforce uh Things that are fundamentally like eugenic ideas about genetics that 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 our genes are our destiny and that um, very little growth mindset in terms to your 
abilities to have an impact on phenotype based off of like your lifestyle <laughs> so mm-hmm. or that your life experience really informs your genetics and in reality we know that your genes uh, interact with the environment and that your phenotypes are ultimately a blend of that but that's not how we teach genetics in any way so I'm I'm excited about my upcoming unit where I'm going to tackle heredity and Mendel's laws where I'm going to start by surveying students understanding and preconceptions about genetics and heredity and then hopefully use those to uh, unpack some misconceptions uh, about how genes and the environment play together to lead a phenotype and and maybe tackle some uh, possibly dangerous eugenic ideas that people still hold in their heads, even though if you were to present them from a historical eugenic standpoint, they would go, oh, no, that's terrible. Um, those mm-hmm. preconceptions, I think, still permeate throughout uh, the way people understand genetics. So I'm excited about how uh, a constructivist approach to teaching genetics in particular um, may help um, hope turn back the clock of some some antiquated ideas that um, we should be doing better at teaching. It's it's really interesting that you say that because um, my pick of the week actually is an yeah. article about how biology class can reduce racism by kind of tackling those misconceptions you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I was trying not to step all over your, uh, your art, your yeah. New York times article, but they're a hundred percent, um, in line with one another. Um, yeah. so, so is there, like, tell me a little bit more. Why, why did you, as we get into the nice natural transition, which I love the natural transition, uh, yeah. uh how, it, what is your pick of the week and what, tell us a little bit more about this, this New York times article. So, uh, this New York times article is about, um, science teachers, um, well, started in, in Colorado, where they're trying to incorporate race into their genetics curriculum. And what they did was they surveyed students about, you know, their ideas about race and how it's tied to genetics. And they are finding that students do have these misconceptions about, you know, genetic determinism that like, you know, for example, one of the examples in the article was, People think there are, you know, more black athletes because they're genetically or inherently like uh, more gifted in terms of athleticism. But the the curriculum that they're trying out is trying to teach students the the kind of nuances of genetics that there is that environmental component and that the variation between populations across the world is is pretty small. So I thought this article kind of touches on like a social justice issue, which is, you know, something that doesn't come up very often in biology classes. And I think it will be uh, an interesting thing, an interesting curriculum to try, you know, once the, the initial results come out from, from this study that they're doing. Uh, this is based off of Brian Donovan's work with BSCS. Um, and as I mentioned, Paul Strode earlier, uh, and I yeah. went to Brian Donovan's talk at NABT in San Diego two years ago. Um, and then I went again to the workshop that that Paul helped uh, co-facilitate uh, this year about the curriculum. And as you said, the, the curriculum's not out yet. Um, they're, they're still testing and collecting feedback and, and data from students on this. But yeah, I've been having conversations. I have notes, extensive notes from the two workshops I went to, even though we weren't allowed to take materials out with us <laughs> on this. Yeah. Uh, but I took pretty extensive notes. And then you know, Paul and I are, are pretty good friends. So I, I've been having sort of conversations with him. And then 
then um, I also, it, you reminded me, I, I, I also picked up something that Kirsten Milks, um, speaking of sort of Knowles fellow people, um, uh, she had put something out uh, about having uh, trans-friendly uh, Punnett Square questions, having trans-friendly language in Punnett Square questions. Um, and so yeah. uh, apparently she had taken some some questions that David Kanefke had worked on um, and then she changed them. And so, you know, there it's subtle language, but, you know, talking about um, using um, cisgendered um, in the language um, mm-hmm. when talking about crosses and you know, uh, biologically, uh, biologically identified as male, um, as offspring rather, as opposed to saying like how many sons and how many daughters talking about it as like identified as, um, yeah, you know, genetically identified as, as opposed to like, it, it's definitely different language. And, and I'm, I am incorporating some of that as well into this upcoming unit that I'm starting to put together. And I would say that it has been, the intentions have not been challenging, um, mm-hmm. but, uh, it has slowed my thinking, <laughs> um, in a lot of ways because, uh, I have a lot of existing resources that I use. And so like, I think of old test bank questions and I think of old example questions that are in challenge problems. And as I, yeah. I line these up, I go, all right, well, I can pull this resource and put this thing up, but where are the, the language choices that are already embedded within my curriculum? You know, um, where are the inequities that already exist? Uh, and so I, I, I am, I have that eye and it's, it's giving me a lot of pause as I try to put this thing together. So I actually have several documents that are on my to-do list to go through and work and try to look through Matt, through that lens. And I, I think I, as I, I had messaged Kirsten and asked her about, uh, the resources and I said, this is an area where I know I can get better. And I think that that's another thing sort of going back to like, what am I looking for? Or, you know, what do I do when I design curriculum? I know all I can do is I can make my curriculum better. I can't make it perfect. So I'm hoping to make it better and then utilize the the feedback and the experience to find the, the, the ways that it could be better. And part of that is acknowledging inequities that exist within the structures that, you know, I have been teaching in and trying to improve those as we move forward. Definitely. So um, I was teaching about um, like, you know, chromosomal non-disjunction and mm-hmm. we were talking about meiosis and, you know, the, the, the issues of like, you know, Klinefelter syndrome and Turner syndrome came up and, you know, students were asking me like, oh, are, are they male or female? And we did it. And it brought up like a really interesting discussion about, you know, like uh, sex and, and gender identity and, um, you know, kind of what terms to use. And um, it was it was really interesting bringing that those like social issues into a biology class for sure. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a topic a lot of us are starting to grapple with. But um, yeah. <laughs> um, as I said, this this year will be better than I've ever done before, um, but we'll also need significant revision as I move forward. Um, and I just try to listen to other people and hopefully can, you know, make things better as I go. All yeah. right. Well, my resource is um, I'm going to make mine tie into what we've talked about. <laughs> um, so I awesome. don't know if you I don't know if you know much about Brene Brown. Is Brene Brown's on your radar? Yeah, I'm familiar with her with her uh, uh, TED talks. Oh, with her TED talks, yeah. So for me, yeah. um, I read, uh, I've read her, uh, I've read one of her books, and I have another one of her books that's on my uh, to get to list very very soon. Uh, in terms of of books of hers that I that I like to read, um, 
And so I think that Brene Brown is is very interesting um, as an author for a lot of reasons. Um, last year, I specifically read uh, The Gifts of Imper- Imperfection um, from her. And I, it's a book, one of those books that's sort of in that self-help help sort of like vein, but um, I didn't find it very like traditional self self helpy kind of thing. It wasn't like here are all the answers. Here's the pathway of how you want to go. Um, but it was very much something that uh, I related to because, as I was mentioning before, um, trying to be perfect is a standard that can uh, really grind you down, and is something that I really, I think, in my heart of hearts, struggle with. Um, yeah. And so the way she talks about um, struggle and making mistakes and growth and learning from mistakes is something that I think um, speaks very deeply to me. But also, if you look at it through that lens of how how we teach, um, is it something that we also embed in our curriculum? Um, I would say that she comes very much from a growth mindset. And uh, since reading her work, uh, I, it's made me question a lot of how the grades that I give to students come across very much is like, this is the final draft and it's a measurement of sort of your level of perfection or to the standard we have, um, which has made me very uncomfortable and is part of the reason why I've shifted more towards a standards-based grade approach. Um, so with that as background, uh, she has a new podcast that's coming up called Unlocking Us. Um, it's the Unlocking Us podcast um, that's going to be coming out starting in March. And um, I am a podcast junkie. As somebody who makes a podcast, I listen to many, many of them. Um, I could not be more excited about Brene Brown having a podcast uh, where she talks just about her philosophy. Honestly, I, she could read the phone book. It, it probably would be <laughs> <laughs> it would probably be compelling. But uh, I am very curious to sort of get little mini doses of Brene Brown um, on a weekly or a couple of times a month basis. Um, coming up starting in March. Cause I think, again, she makes me personally very reflective. Um, and I hope that, uh, others, and I know others talk of her in the same way. So, uh, it's, uh, something I'm putting out as my pick because this is coming out in February and you will have time a month to subscribe. I'm already subscribed, even though it's in January and that podcast is not coming out until March. <laughs> yeah. That's really exciting though. I'm, I, I would definitely be interested in listening to that too. Yeah. All right. Well, Ali, thank you so much for joining me um, on one of our rare day off, days off in the middle of the winter. Um, and uh, you know, thanks for for joining me. Um, it's been a, it's been a great talk. I I makes me think back to those early years um, of the career, yeah. <laughs> uh, somewhat fondly, and also very much happy that I'm have the uh, privilege of being in year twenty four and you know know what I know, um, and know all that I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for having me. All right. Well, let me give credits to the episode. Uh, please subscribe to life of the school on your podcast player of choice. Uh, you can go to patreon.com and you can get show notes there. Um, I also release my episodes early for my Patreons and po- Patreons contribute a buck or two a month. And that helps offset the costs of, uh, putting out a podcast, including, uh, hosting it and, uh, hosting media and all of those fun things. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X magicians. Uh, show notes are also posted on lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. And again, you can follow Ali at Sayed Science or at Sayed Science for Instagram and at Ali Sayed Science on Twitter. So thanks all for joining me and I will talk to everybody soon.